Uh, just a quick highlight for next year. Uh, so obviously each uh, practice area within actuarial society has uh, hosts a seminar similar to this one. Obviously this one is the best, but uh, next year that won't be the case. Next year all of the different practice area seminars will be rolled into the IAA Colloquium, which is taking place the 2nd to the 5th of April. It will be in Cape Town. There will be an option for you to either attend the full event or just attend a one day which would be which would replace the non-life seminar. Um, so just for you guys to note that. Just a quick poll that I think ESA would be interested in, just to gauge would you guys be attending this? Uh, make sure that your manager budgets Budget for the Cape Town flight and hotel. So I see a number of responses are reducing. Please, guys, come on. Okay. So our next topic is uh, on IFRS 17, the new accounting standards. And uh, Christopher Millen will be introducing our, our panel for today. Thank you, CS. Uh, hello, everybody. Um, yeah, so uh, as our contribution from the IFRA 17 uh, working party, uh, we arranged a few experts to um, have some discussion around some IFRA 17 topics, which hopefully will be interesting to you all. Um, maybe I can just start by first introducing our panel to you guys. Um, first up, we have Carl from Deloitte. Um, he's a director at Deloitte Actuarial and Insurance Solutions. He leads and leads the Deloitte IFRA 17 initiative for short-term insurance in South Africa. With over 12 years of experience, Carl has advised his clients, their boards, and the regula regulator across the full range of actuarial services. He's been involved in a variety of IFRA 17 GAP training and implementation initiatives across South Africa, Mauritius, and the Middle East. Carl is passionate about the future of the actuarial profession, and while he is responsible for the Exponential Actuary Initiative within Deloitte South Africa, he also actively participates in ASSA's education initiatives and serves at the, as the Education Subcommittee Chair of the ASSA Short-Term Insurance Committee. Welcome, Carl. And we also have here today Junaid Khan. He's a partner at PwC. He leads the actuarial service offering in the short-term insurance industry in South Africa, as well as the rest of Africa and the Middle East. His role at PwC, or in his role, Junaid has developed a wide range of experience across reserving capital management, enterprise risk management, and more recently, IFRA 17, where he has assisted clients with detailed impact assessments. Then uh, our, just to keep a bit of diversity on the panel, we also invited Esther. <laughs> so Esther is a key technical advisor to KPMG's clients in the insurance industry. She has extensive experience in providing accounting opinions to clients in these industries and has also performed many financial statement reviews. Esther has presented IFRA 17 workshops to clients and staff on the practical implications of IFRA 17 and has also performed impact assessments for insurers in the non-life industry. She is the chairperson of the South African Institute of Chartered Accountants IFRA 17 Interest Group, which, whose purpose is to discuss implementation of IFRA 17 in the insurance industry, and she is also uh, the African representative on KPMG's global insurance topic team, which discusses IFRA 17 global implementation issues. Then last but not least, uh, Kavi uh, is a partner at ENY. He's leading the actuarial practice across Africa. He's worked extensively across the industry for more than 10 years. His clients include almost all of the short-term insurers of size in the South African market and several large players on the African continent. He has served as a statutory actuary for four short-term insurance licenses in the South African market, 
and is the appointed actuary for Kenyan General Insurer and serves on the board of a large South African life insurance group. He has specialized in the application of actuarial expertise to the industry, including reserve valuations, pricing, product development, capital modeling, economic scenario generators, Solvency 2, SAM, and more recently, IFRA 17. He has extensive experience in model risk management and model validation, and has designed a model validation framework as part of the IMAP process. Kavoy has also consulted on risk management frameworks, ERM and ORSA over the past five years to a large portion of the local market. So very welcome to our panelists. Okay, so just to start the discussion, we're just gonna do a bit of a refresher on IFRA 17, uh, mainly for those unfamiliar with it, but which shouldn't be the case, hopefully. Um, so just one slide on what is IFRA 17, why is it here, and um, how, how, how can we see it unfold? So, so IFRA 17 is a global accounting standard um, that for the valuation of insurance contract for both life and general insurers. Uh, the final standard has been published in May of 2017 with the implementation dates in 1 Jan 2021. Um, it will effectively impact all IFRS reporters um, from the implementation date. And the impact, however, will vary by firm depending on the types of business they've written or they write and also the uh, level of maturity of their various business processes. So why is the standard then brought in? Well, um, the current IFRS 4 standard is an interim standard, and it leads to various diverse practices and differing treatments within the, account, the income statement and the balance sheets. So, and therefore, comparisons across different products, companies, and jurisdictions are a bit difficult to do. So the IISB has therefore um, uh, implemented IFRS 17 with the aim of having consistency across various industries and consistency across various companies with regards to insurance contract valuations. Uh, the intention is to eventually have one measurement model for all contracts, and they believe this is this market consistent approach will achieve the best information. Um, there is, however, a request from general insurers for a simplified version of the model, which is also referred to as the premium allocation approach, um, which should be a good approximation to the building blocks or the general measurement model, as it's otherwise known. Um, and on this topic, there would be more discussions around um, when to use the particular premium allocation approach, which can lead to potential issues around its eligibility for multi-year contracts. Um, now, since we've already now more than a year long from when the standard was published, we thought it best to also do a quick poll, polling exercise to just see where the audience or the companies you work for is with respect to your planning and development on the IFRA 17 front. All right. So uh, maybe you can just indicate the type of insurance company that you work for. And for our consultants, we haven't forgotten about you. There is an option D that you can select. Seems to be a quite heavily insurance related as expected. All right, um, uh, if we move on, we can move on to the next question maybe. Um, how would you rate your knowledge on IFRA 17 accounting standard? Okay, so I don't feel that intimidated because I see that the majority of the audience <laughs> is on the same level as me. <laughs> okay. Um, how prepared is your company um, with regards to the IFRS 17 implementation? Again, our uh, auditors can select E. Sure. Okay. Big proportion that's already developing, it seems. All right. Um, question four. Uh, do you think your company will be compliant with the IFRS 17 standards by the effective dates? Okay. Um, maybe just your opinion on whether actuaries will be more involved when it comes to preparing the financial statements under IFRS 17 than currently under IFRS 4. Okay, that's a resounding yes. Okay, um, 
Are you also planning on leveraging off your SAM or Solvency 2 calculation platforms? Um, or maybe you haven't really thought that far? This is something I'd like to know. Okay, um, and which measurement model do you anticipate your company will mainly use for calculating the liability for remaining coverage? Bigger majority premium allocation approach. Okay, now um, the last two questions, very similar. So whether you've indicated the use of the building blocks, please indicate the type of insurance company um, you work for, again, just to get a demographic of the types of insurer doing the particular approach, I guess. Okay, and then the last question is very similar. Um, so where you've indicated the premium allocation, I guess the majority would be insurers there. I find it interesting that there's some reinsurers also actually wanting to do the PAA. Um, okay. Yeah, so that, that concludes our poll. So hopefully, it's very short, uh, I guess, but uh, hopefully that gives you an idea of where you are compared to your peers. Um, so yeah, now on to the discussion to our panelists. So um, I'm just going to dive right into it and uh, maybe address our first question to uh, Esther. So Esther, um, maybe you can just give us a bit of uh, more information as to how the premium allocation approach compares to the building block. In particular, in which instances can the premium allocation be used to approximate the, BA, uh, the building blocks? How simple is the process of demonstrating one meets the criteria to apply the premium allocation? And how does one demonstrate that the premium allocation is, in fact, a good approximation to the building blocks? Um, thank you. Um, good morning from my side. So, yes, I think it is obviously um, always an interesting debate as to which measurement model will be used. Um, the general uh, feel or what we've seen with short-term insurers is that if they can apply the premium allocation approach, that is definitely the way to go. Now, if do look at IFRS 17, it does give you two requirements or one of the two requirements that have to be fulfilled in order to apply the premium allocation approach. So the first one is that the coverage period is one year or less. Now, if that is the case, you don't need to prove anything. You don't need to prove that, that the premium allocation model will be a proxy for the building block approach. Um, the International Accounting Standards Board made it clear that if your contract is one year or less, you are eligible, your, your, the insurance company that you work for is eligible to apply the premium allocation approach. As you know, it's an option. So it's not if you meet it, you have to apply it. It is still an option. So if you meet the requirement, you can apply the premium allocation approach. So that is the first requirement. The second requirement states that if you don't expect significant variability at the inception of the contract. And where they do refer to the variability, they look at the liability for remaining coverage. So if you um, have dealt with the premium allocation approach, if you look at the um, liability for remaining um, coverage, it mainly relates to the premium received. So that is what's included in there. So what they're saying, if you look at inception of the contract and you don't expect significant variability in, that, um, in the cash flows relating to that liability, you can apply the premium allocation approach. And that is then seen as a proxy of the building block approach. And they do give some examples of when would you expect some significant variability. And that is generally if they, for example, there are derivatives embedded in that contract that you not separate. And also if you look at the duration of the contract. So the longer the contract is, potentially the um, higher the variability will be in that contract and when the cash flow is relating to the contract. So for... for um, one-year contracts, as we said, that is uh, that you can apply the premium allocation approach. When you start looking at a longer contract, you look at a 12, 13-month contract, potentially you can still meet it because I think looking probably at history, what's happened in the past, you, or knowing the, the contract, you know if, they, if you do expect significant variability in the cash flows. And as I've said, it doesn't look like, it doesn't refer to claims incurred. It only looks at the liability for remaining coverage that relates to your premium received that you include in that liability. Um, so yeah, I think I just wanted to make sure I've answered that. Um, so for certainly where you have a contract that is longer, 12 months, 13 months, 
well, 13, 14 months, two years, there is a test, and that is really relating to the variability in the cash flows that you expect at inception, relating to that liability for remaining coverage. Um, and yeah, I think that depending on the contract, how, how um, difficult that would be, based on your experience in the product, that, that obviously will contribute to it. Uh, yeah, and I think that, that is sort of, obviously I think that it's still some application needed. Um, the, the thing with IFRS 17, it does give you the principles, but there is still a lot of work in applying that and improving it. There's not always a quick answer or this is, this is what the answer would be. The standard talks about significant variability. Significant is not generally defined. Okay, thanks, Esther. Um, I don't know, does any of the other panelists have something to add to that? Do I have any questions from the floor? Mm. Seems like everybody's happy. Okay. Um, um, this question I'm going to direct to Junaid. Uh, um, with regards to the assessment of reinsurance under IFRS 17, is there a difference in the allowance for outward reinsurance under IFRS 17 compared to SAM? Um, will the treatment of outward reinsurance under IFRS 17 lead to inconsistency between your gross and reinsurance figure at valuation? And also, would it be possible, in your opinion, to work towards a framework where you can value your outward reinsurance, which can be used for both IFRS 17 and for SAM? Thanks, Christoph, and uh, I guess good afternoon, uh, morning rather, to, to everybody. I mean, I think at first glance, looking at the standard, it doesn't seem like the treatment of out outwards reinsurance or reinsurance held appears to be significantly different to what we currently do under SAM or, or IFRS. But I think the devil is really in the detail in this one, and I think you know, the first sort of clue is that the standard explicitly says that reinsurance held uh, must be measured and accounted for separately. Um, so if you think about what that means and you think about the other requirements in the standard, the specific requirements around granularity, around treatment of CSM, contract boundaries that lead you into a world where it's unlikely actually that what we currently do will apply um, under, under 17. Uh, so let's look at what we currently do. I guess common practice would be for um, you know, insurance companies to effectively net down using some sort of approximate approach your gross provisions to determine the reinsurer's share thereof. Now that is unlikely to be applicable and meet the requirement under 17. Um, and the reason for that is, like I said, there's various reasons, various technical arguments in the standard about, around contract boundaries, uh, CSM, uh, level of granularity, the objective obviously of the standard to try and measure uh, individual contracts. So you run into quite, quite a bit of problem. Um, unfortunately, we don't have the time to go into all of the technical detail, and I guess additionally reinsurance contracts by their nature can be quite bespoke. So um, in fact, yeah, you could probably do a whole presentation just on the implications of reinsurance. But I think suffice to say that it will be different. Um, and kind of looking at the second question there around just inconsistencies, I think we'll, that, that will highlight some of the, the challenges or the differences to what we, what we used to currently. Uh, and it's more than just emergence of profit. It could have impacts on kind of operational and systems requirements in terms of data around, around reinsurance. But in addition to that, more complex modeling of your contracts um, and then even strategic decisions around what types of reinsurance contracts you enter into. into. So touching on, I guess, the inconsistencies between the gross and your, I guess, direct or underlying contracts, um, maybe you know, it, it's, it's important to kind of look at the basis for conclusions that was issued uh, together with the standard. So for those who are not familiar, the basis for conclusions document was a document that the ISB also issued when the final standard was issued. It's not part of the standard, but what it does contain is a summary of all the deliberations and sort of considerations of the board in terms of getting to the final requirements. So what you notice in there is that the board explicitly mentions that uh, you know, they expect there to be mismatches between your direct business and uh, you know, the reinsurance, corresponding reinsurance uh, held on those contracts. Um, and that's not a, although it appears sort of as, a, as an accounting mismatch, it's deliberate in the sense that it's necessary to give you or reflect the economic realities of the different, different contracts. Um, and just a couple of reasons why those mismatches will, will sort of occur. So you think about our market, and I guess you know majority of short-term insurers are looking to apply the premium allocation approach uh, on the basis that you'll be automatically eligible to do so, i.e. contract boundaries less than a year. 
that being said, uh, if you look at reinsurance contracts, you could be in a scenario where the corresponding reinsurance contract has a longer boundary than a year, i.e., if you look at a risk-attaching contract, you're probably going to be in a scenario where it's a two-year contract boundary and you're not automatically eligible to apply the premium allocation approach. Um, and therefore, you're into Esther's point around needing to demonstrate that the PAA will give you a similar outcome to the building blocks. From the work we've done and the modeling um, that, 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 that we've done at a few of our clients, we've kind of seen that that's not the case, uh, both here locally and, and internationally, particularly for reinsurance contracts, and particularly in a high interest rate environment. So there's a couple of nuances that then lead you to quite significant differences between the premium allocation and building blocks. So it's unlikely that you're going to have consistency there. Um, and I guess as a result of that, and you think about the fact that on the building blocks you've got to allow for all expected future cash flows, you're in a scenario where now you need to estimate all possible cash flows that will be generated under this contract. That includes all future new business that you as the direct writer will write and attach to that reinsurance contract. That's not something we do currently, i.e. estimate what the future new premiums will be under that contract, what the claims will be, et cetera, et cetera. So, so that already creates quite a, quite a big difference. I've talked about contract boundary. Um, the rules around CSM for your direct contracts versus your reinsurance contracts are also quite different. So just very quickly, I guess, um, you know, CSM can only be positive for direct business, but for your indirect or reinsurance contracts, I guess, uh, the CSM can be either positive or negative. Um, so I guess using just an example, if you write a book of business that's uh, loss-making or onerous, under IFRS 17, you're required to book that loss immediately. Uh, now, you're likely to have a reinsurance contract in place that obviously mitigates some of that loss or reduces the loss to some extent and therefore, from your perspective, is a asset or profitable contract. The standard doesn't allow you to take that benefit upfront. So what happens is you're going to book the loss immediately, but on the reinsurance contract, you've got to defer the offsetting impact that effectively will help to mitigate, I guess, to some extent, um, the loss. I think just on the last, the last comment around can you use or build something that's applicable under, under, under SAM and, and IFRS, I think the safe answer as an actuary is probably it depends. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm skeptical about whether that's possible just given the fact that, you know, the objective of these different requirements are quite different. Reinsurance contracts are quite bespoke. In fact, the CFO forum, um, if, if you guys have been following the debate, have raised a number of issues that they're worried about at the standard, and they're trying to lobby the board to kind of extend or relook at some of the requirements and reinsurance and, and, and kind of the inconsistencies around reinsurance is something that, that has been raised. So I think that for me is evidence that reinsurance and what we, how we treat reinsurance currently under, under, under Solvency 2 or SAM and IFRS is very different to what we're going to do under 17. Um, so I think from what I've seen at my clients, um, you know, it's something that guys have ignored uh, or not really paid much attention to. I think it is something that you need to think about quite actively, think about your particular business and think about the potential impacts to understand um, you know, what, what will happen when you're actually in a, in a 17 world. Because you don't want to be caught in a scenario where I guess you're stuck with an outcome that you actually don't like. Um, yeah, I think I've covered pretty much everything. Good answer. <laughs> Maybe we should go back to that uh, one poll question where I asked whether you're going to leverage off of SAM or Solvency 2. I think a lot of people will change their minds now. Um, okay, well, uh, thank you very much for your answer. And that was quite informative. Um, yeah, moving on. Uh, unless this, sorry. Maybe just. Can I add something? Uh, yeah, sure. Sorry. Um, so I think um, I completely agree with. Uh, with everything Junaidis has laid out, to me, um, this plays out in in on in two fronts. Um, I think uh, you know, as mentioned, the CFO forum is uh, is lobbying as well as a number of other groups around looking at and relooking at how reinsurance is treated. Um, I, I, certainly, my reading on the standard, it, it, it seems as though you know there was a very principles-based approach followed. We're valuing every contract on its own terms. And this is a consequence um, of that, but obviously a practical consequence that they didn't foresee. So there might be some movement there. Um, but but w whether it will completely address the issue, unknown, um, probably unlikely. Um, I think the other front it's going to play out on is how reinsurance is actually placed and designed. Um, because essentially the re reinsurers are probably going to uh, want to provide clients with uh, contracts and risk mitigation that reflects on their balance sheets and on, on their KPIs in an appropriate way. Um, and, and so I think once the dust is settled on what the accounting actually looks like, 
uh, it will be the turn, the, the, the turn of the industry to then uh, mold their products in order to achieve the outcomes wanted. Okay, thanks, Kobe. Um, uh, if there's nothing else to add, we can move on to the third question. Um, I've been reading some of the questions from the floor, and I can see that a lot of these actually relates to what uh, <laughs> uh, Cole is actually um, the question addressed to Cole. So maybe on the loyalty programs for the cashbacks front, which measurement model do you anticipate insurers offering rewards materializing after 12 months uh, most likely to be used? And uh, has the ISB communicated guidance on whether the premium allocation approach can be used in these circumstances? <clears throat> okay, so, well, well firstly, uh, thanks to Crystal for, for arranging this panel. It's surprisingly difficult to find uh, four willing participants and uh, you'll see today obviously it's, it is a bunch of consultants so um, but I think unfortunately it reflects also potentially a, a either a mindset or a current view around the the importance and the level of effort that needs to go into EFRA 17 um, at this stage but um, so I'll, I'll leave you to mull over that but so I'll very quickly answer the second part of this question that's the easy one I think uh, has the ISB given any guidance I'm not aware of any guidance um, around this matter particularly. Uh, what's interesting in our industry is that, so this was recently raised at the, um, at the SICA IFRA 17 working group um, with the outcome that it will be discussed further at, this, at the next meeting. So maybe just some quick background, where does this um, come from before I answer um, or give a view on the first item. So. I guess a lot of insurers that we've spoken to where they have been doing some thinking around IFRS 17 is the, the response is sort of, yes, we've read the standard, we've considered the, the, the contract boundary issue and yeah, premium allocation approach is, is probably the way that we are going to go, so we, we should be okay. Um, and that I think often is informed by sort of a view from what, what the SA current SAM contract boundaries are. Um, and also, I guess, the, the comment that was made earlier around the devil is really in the details. So, so firstly, I think it's not, this doesn't apply to all cashback programs or loyalty programs. So in the case where you're not accumulating some kind of balance that's going to get paid out over a, um, a, towards the end of a period, so for example, um, something that's different would be like a no claims discount that gets paid out every month. I mean, obviously, you, you don't necessarily have this problem. But the, the point is really every single product, just because it's a cashback, doesn't mean that um, it, it'll have this problem. You need to really look at the terms and conditions attached to the payment um, and, and when it can be paid. So, so where, does, where does this problem come from? So if you look at the way um, if 17 defines the contract boundary, it starts off with a, uh, a concept to say, well, um, it's pretty much as long as you can compel either the insurer or the policyholder. Um, the insurer can compel the policyholder to pay premiums or the policyholder can compel the insurer to, to provide cover. But if you then read the requirements by which they define when the contract boundary ends, it's actually a, a little bit more detailed than something Sam would specify. Um, so just briefly, I mean, I'm not going to go into the details, but effectively it, it, it forks into two areas. So firstly, it says, well, you can only end the contract or the contract boundary ends if you can fully reflect the um, risk on a policy, on an individual policy. So I guess the, the key words there are really you are able to fully reflect and you are able to do it on an individual policy or risk basis. So, so that, that's the area where um, the question started coming from in the sense that, well, if you've got a multi-year contract, um, at what point can you, I mean, can you as a, um, well, when I say multi-year contract, you're paying a cashback over more than one year, can you actually say that at the end of year one you are able to fully reflect the risk um, for the cashback component uh, if the person has not claimed? So I'll leave that there um, and I'll just move on to the second part of the definition. So the second part of the definition for when the contract can end talks about, well, if you, if you can't individually price the risk and you can reprice it on a portfolio basis, it's got sort of a two-step um, uh, or two components to the definition. It says, yes, if you can 
apply or price appropriately for all risk on a portfolio basis, you are not allowed to take into account, well, that's the interpretation effectively, you can't take into account any cash flows outside or any risks emanating outside of the contract boundary. So that also then brought into the question, well, even if you re-rate your book on a monthly or on an annual basis, fully reflecting all potential risks, um, aren't you then considering a cash flow outside the boundary if you're applying sort of a one-year uh, boundary? So that was, that's sort of the, the origin of the question. I don't think there's a definitive answer to what the outcome is going to be. I think, as mentioned earlier, um, it's, it's, just, it's not that simple. You actually need to look at your own policies. What do they trigger um, in, in, in terms of the definition? And, and what are you going to apply in terms of the, the interpretation? There's one or two views um, out there, but not, nothing uh, concrete at the moment. I mean, at the IFRS 17 working group, it was, uh, so some of them were aired. The one was, well, if you kind of take a retrospective view of your cash back um, and you don't sort of build a three-year cash flow model and try and solve an ROE for, for that uh, particular policy, then you could argue that you're not allowing for future risks. You're effectively pricing for the full risk um, that you see emanating from your book over the one-year period. Um, but I guess, so that, that has some pros, cons, and implications. The other area that was viewed was around, well, you treat it like the way you do currently, and it's effectively, um, and yeah, I, I can't really articulate it, because it, um, it well, because I, I also didn't fully grasp sort of what it meant, but it effectively came down to you add the reserve for your cashback as part of the premium allocation, your UPP, as you do at the moment. Um, but it has a lot of technical uh, challenge uh, to, to that view, just given the way the standard is written. So, um, so in short, yeah, the ISB hasn't given a view on it, and uh, I think it is certainly a, a challenge for, for our industry. In terms of which measurement model do you anticipate insurers have to use? Um, so again, as, as Esther men mentioned, um, there, if it's more than one year, you will have to demonstrate um, that the PAA is eligible or that you can apply the PAA to the liability. So it, it means you can't automatically use the PAA approach. I guess, I mean, for some groups that are, are considering going building block um, across the board, in any case, it doesn't really make maybe that a bigger difference. But if your IFRS 17 program or assumption is sort of you will be doing 100% coverage of PAA approach, that, um, I mean, the step change is gargantuan in terms of a PAA implementation versus a building block um, interpret, uh, implementation. So it, it, it's quite a big obstacle and it's not something you want to figure out only the, the year or so before implementation. I guess, yeah, that's, that's it for me unless there are further questions. I think I'll, gotta, I'll, I'll come back to the questions. Um, Right at the end of this time, um, focusing on the ones with the most likes. So please, if you have a burning question, make sure that you, you raise it. Um, okay, thanks, Cole. Um, on to Covey, a shorter question, but not necessarily easier. Um, building on from IFRS or SAM, um, to what extent is IFRS 17 similar to SAM, firstly? Can you maybe highlight a few elements that we should be looking out for? Yeah, thanks, Christoph. Um, thanks for the question. Um, it's a tricky one to answer. I think, um, I'm, and I'm going to focus obviously on the um, on the liability valuations here because I, I suspect that's what the that's what the question was sort of directed at. Obviously, in terms of the disclosures and and various other components, there are a lot of differences between IFRS and SAM. Um, but if, if you zoom in on, on liability valuations. Um, I mean, starting at the top, I, th I think the principles around what these two um, uh, pieces of regulation or counting standards are trying to achieve are very different. Um, and, and what it comes down to is I think IFRS 17 is, is more around how to recognize profits um, and how to recognize them in line with uh, providing an insurance service. Um, it's, it's really designed to, to be analogous to the rest of the IFRS accounting, IFRS 15, IFRS 9, and things like that. Um, where SAM is obviously very much interested in an economic balance sheet um, and, and a, a evaluation at that date um, of, of the, the liabilities 
according to economic and, and you know, fair value principles. Um, so, so right off the bat, there, there are very different, uh, different um, objectives here. Um, that being said, I think there are definitely similarities. Um, I, I'll, I'll use the example of one of our clients in Europe, in fact, a larger insurer who um, has, has these two and, and a few other uh, reporting requirements to meet, um, essentially underta has undertaken an exercise to try and, and align as much of the, of the two, uh, the, in Europe obviously being Solvency II um, and IFRS as possible. Um, and basically what it came down to was um, best estimate cash flows. Um, the core of uh, the general model um, in terms of projecting best estimate cash flows and of the SAM valuation around best estimate cash flows are very, very uh, linked to each other. So what, what this client in particular did was they ring-fenced um, the, the, the generation of cash flows and aligned it completely between all valuation bases um, and then had offshoots uh, of that which would uh, essentially modify the, the cash flow projections in, in, to, to arrive at different valuations. Um, so so if, if I were to look through it, I think that, that's probably the, the key thing and, and um, that, that will play out in both the general model where you're obviously projecting cash flows um, as well as the, uh, the liability for incurred claims where I, would, I suspect triangulation approaches are going to be um, quite, quite heavily used. But while that's, that, that is certainly true, I think one of the, if, if you work through the different components of, of, of a, a liability valuation, a lot of the differences then start to become apparent and, and not as simple as, as that would first appear. Um, so so the, the, the first thing that, that, that you obviously hit is, um, is the level of aggregation um, and the lines of business um, on, on SAM. And I don't think there is a, a, a very good way, um, certainly that I've come across, of, of completely aligning those two things. Um, so essentially what you're going to have to do um, if you're trying to align IFRS and SAM, I think, is, is to pick a, a, a segmentation and, and map essentially to two different, uh, d different uh, ways of, of breaking the, the, the book of business up. Um, and, and I think that, that in itself is, is going to be challenging depending on, on which way you do it in order to align the two. Um, then if, 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 if we go through it, so I mean on, on the premium allocation approach, I think while it's, it's quite clear to me that I don't think there's, that there are any real similarities. Obviously premium allocation approach is much more focused on a, an, an analogous accounting accrual method, whereas um, you know, SAM premium provisions are, are essentially economic value once again. For most short-term business, which is very, very short-dated, I think the, the quantum that you end up with means that it, it probably doesn't make too much difference um, to people, but I think you're definitely going to end up with different approaches, approaches there, and also in terms of onerous assessments um, and, and essentially holding provisions for onerous contracts. Um, then on the, on, the, on the actual general model itself, I mean, I, th I think I've spoken about the best estimate cash flows. Um, I think the, the CSM is obviously very different, um, and, and under IFRS you're going to need, need a CSM model which won't exist under SAM. Um, the the um, discount rates that are used, obviously prescribed under SAM, a little bit more flexibility under, under IFRS. Um, I'm not certain to what extent they can be, um, can be aligned. I haven't worked through that detail myself, but I suspect you, you probably could get quite close. Um, on, the, on the liability for remaining coverage, I think that's, that's quite clear in terms of triangles and, and, and a very similar discounted cash flow approach. Overhead expense provision obviously doesn't, doesn't exist under IFRS um, and, and obviously the expense provision that you will hold under IFRS much more dependent on allocated expenses rather than, rather than a proportion of overhead so that immediately will, will obviously create a difference. The risk margin uh, prescribed under SAM whereas under, under IFRS uh, you can set your own risk margin but you need to, declare, uh, you need to disclose a, a percentile. Um, and so I think we will, we will not say goodbye to bootstrapping models, unfortunately. Um, and, and then lastly, 
um, the reinsurance, uh, which we've spoken about, I think, at, at length, is, is, is obviously going to create some issues on the, on, on the efforts. So while I think the, the, the elements that can be aligned, and I think if you work quite hard, you can actually align the two to, to, to a large degree, I see quite a lot of difference um, between the two. Um, and, and, and I think the case study of, of that European insurer is not a bad approach if you are trying to get some synergies out of the two models. Cool. Thanks, Kavi. Yeah, I mean, this whole talk around IFRS 17 has definitely opened up my eyes to, I mean, you don't really recognize the differences until you actually get stuck into the detail. Um, yeah, we've got one last question, uh, which I'm going to just throw open to the panel. Um, so whoever wants it first, go. Um, firstly, do you expect uh, any that IFRS 17 will change the way in which insurers um, price, reserve, and conductory insurance, maybe? If so, how? I'm happy to start. Um, I guess what we've seen already is, yes, it is forcing uh, insurance companies to think about, think about these things. And maybe perhaps building on the sort of point that Kavi's talking about, trying to leverage SAM to, I guess, do it for 17, you could also get into a trap where, as a result of that, you try and fit everything, I guess, into the building blocks model and say, look, we've already done uh, you know, all the level of sort of model complexity and data and all of that, so we might as well use it for, for, for IFRS 17 purposes. Um, but again, coming back to the devil in the detail, if you actually look at the level of disclosures that are required under 17 versus what we currently used to, uh, it's massively different. It'll force you to think about you know, how you go about pricing your contracts. Uh, you've got to show now onerous contracts, strip that out and disclose that separately in the financial statements. There's questions around contract boundaries and how you treat, I guess, uh, reinsurers. So it's going to force you to think about how you price. And then we haven't touched on the level of aggregation. Um, and that's another fuzzy area in the standard um, where it's principles-based. It's definitely going to be an area of significant judgment. Um, but it refers to, uh, and again, going back to the basis for conclusions, it talks about you know, managing risks similarly, and it refers to, to, to pricing in particular. So, so if kind of pricing is a peg on which you determine the level of aggregation, um, you know, then certainly you're going to have to think about that, and there certainly will be a lot more close interaction between your pricing, reserving, uh, and I guess your finance, uh, finance, finance team. Um, and then just market sort of, uh, you know, you're going to put this out into the market, so you've got to be able to explain these numbers. Um, so you're going to think about that, and we're already seeing clients start to think about, well, if I need to show this, do I actually want to show this, and what's the message going to be around what I'm showing? So, so yeah. So maybe not directly addressing pricing, reserving, and reinsurance, but say, taking a step back and just say, well, how does if for 17 change your business? So one of the examples I like or always refer to is, well, I mean, do you as an insurer actually know what your decision-making framework is for making decisions under the standard. So the standard introduces, not all of them are relevant to short-term insurers, but close to around 30 new or 30 types of decisions. And are you making those decisions based on what is easiest to change from a systems point of view? Or do you take a more sort of strategic view and say, well, I don't necessarily want to limit my product development um, capability by my accounting infrastructure choice that I make? And so I think that's, that's quite an important consideration in your IFRS 17 journey because we've done gap analyses and impact assessments and produced the results and then you go back six months later and no real decisions have been made um, on those things because there's, there hasn't been a, a, a sort of a central view within the organization around well, what are we going to use to make a base or as our basis for, for making decisions. So maybe not directly relevant to the question but I think more pertinent for the, yeah, the operations of the insurer. Yeah, maybe one thing to add, I mean, just on the, on the pricing side, I, th I think that for me is, is, the, most, is the most interesting um, element. And it's obviously difficult to say uh, exactly how, how pricing is going to be affected in the market. Um, I think it, it, it depends on a huge number of factors and, and specific insurers. But, but um, I think to, to Carl's point on that decision-making framework, and, to, and for me it's really about the KPIs, what are people measured on? And most companies are measured on, on profitability, um, and if it's IFRS, then you know, it's the IFRS profits that, that, that are really going to drive decision-making. Um, so, so depending on what happens, especially around premium allocation versus general models, I can see classes of business where essentially 
um, profits are, are now smoothed and recognized a lot more uniformly over, over a period of time. Um, and whereas in the past, you know, there was a, a much lower recognition up front or a much higher le level of recognition up front and, 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 and things flowing down later on. And I think that element in itself could change market behavior um, and the way people approach pricing um, in, in short-term insurance. But, but it, it, it really depends on a, a whole host of factors for that to play out. Okay. Um, do we have time for a few questions? Okay. Um, so I'm just going to read the ones at the top, ones with the most likes. Seems like, um, uh, how will financial reinsurance look like after IFRA 17? Anyone want to take a stab at that? So I think the easiest way to summarize, I think I saw it written in an article somewhere, um, but the, the, the quote goes something along the lines of, well, IFRA 17 destroys financial reinsurance. Basically, you have to account for all the cash flows, so the sort of creation of off-balance sheet liabilities or, or assets that you don't necessarily always see on the financial statements disappears. That's uh, at least uh, yeah, what we've seen come through. But, but you will, the whole thing will be in 17, so you're unlikely to separate a portion, account for it, and the financial instrument standard. It's likely that the whole thing, because it's all related, be in the insurance standard. I think related, and it probably covers a wider point, but I think it all goes back to the objective of the standard, and it's to measure individual contracts. Um, so although um, through sort of the deliberations, um, you know, for short-term business, they introduced this concept of portfolios and, and, and groups, the standard does say you could end up with a group that has one contract. So, you know, reinsurance in particular, it, it, it's going to be quite difficult to prove that you don't manage um, these individual contracts on an individual basis. So in terms of the way you negotiate these contracts, the way you, um, I guess, even the way the reinsurers price for these contracts. So, so yeah, I think just in general, reinsurance is going to create quite a bit of problem. Hmm. Um, okay. Uh, could a cashback be treated as a non-insurance contract and so accounted for not as if for 17? Could a cashback be treated as a non-insurance... Wait. Could a cashback be treated as a non-insurance contract and so accounted for not as if for 17? Yeah. Okay. Now I understand it. Took me a while. Um, so, from from the peer looking at the standard and when can a, a similar concept we we talked about the financial reinsurance. When can you when do you need to say this product contains elements that's not insurance related? So that's where I've said a financial reinsurance as well. It's one contract. It's not a separate loan. It's one contract. And I think from a cash back point of view, it's all insurance related. So um, it's part and parcel of the same contract. So it, it would be purely, really from an accounting point of view, it would be difficult to say, well, separate it out and account for it in terms of, of, of another standard. Uh, you, you'll be limited by 17. Yeah, so I think, I, mean, I think that was also discussed at the, the, the task group. So if it's a type of cashback that's independent of claim performance, um, then I think potentially, but as soon as the uh, the condition of payment is related to yeah. the insurance risk um, of the contract, you're going to struggle to justify that uh, you can separate it out. Yeah, if you if you have a customer loyalty program, I think separate where you get for every premium we get rewards. Yes, that is something potentially separate, which you account for a different segment. But if it's normal, if you don't claim and you get cash back, it will be more difficult to will be difficult to say it's not in 17. Okay. Um, um, yeah, uh, there's still a lot of questions, <laughs> but I, five minutes. Okay, great. Um, all right, uh, carrying on. Uh, Kavi mentioned using bootstrap models to estimate risk, man risk adjustment. Can you justify using SAM risk margin calculation to inform the risk adjustment under EFRA 17? So, um, 
Yes. So, so I, I, I think over here, um, the, the point is you've got to disclose the, the level of your, of your risk margin. Um, that's the key thing. EPRA 17 is, is much less prescriptive than SAM when it comes to how you actually calculate the risk margin. Um, I mean, if you were to use SAM to do the risk margin, one of the things you need to be conscious of is, is you're then linking in a very uh, clear way your solvency and capital requirements. Um, to your financial performance and, and, and risk margin on your, on your balance sheet. And I think it's worthwhile thinking through the secondary implications of, 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 of doing something like that. Um, but, but in my mind, it's entirely possible. Yeah, so if I could just add, so using your current risk adjustment from Sam, in, in my or in our view, you wouldn't be able to use it just as is. Um, because of the fundamental basis under which you calculate it for SAM is not consistent with the requirement for EFRA 17. Can you adjust it? Um, I think so, so we've embarked on a journey to, to see that when we've looked at uh, sort of some of the global thinking around this. Um, I think uh, looking at some of the real big projects um, ongoing globally, it looks like risk adjustment has been assumed um, a, something that will be sorted out later in the project um, and so it'll be a calculation for now they kind of proxy it as a percentage of the liability but you know, we'll, that's an actuarial problem um, and, and will get resolved later on. Um, so, to, so back to the question, um, so I, I'm not sure at this stage if you can use it. We've seen some, lots of strong arguments that it can be done but we haven't seen any conclusive views from, from any of the, the, the big firms. Okay, uh, last question. I think uh, there's time for one more. Um, should pricing actuaries be consulted? Oh, yeah. Should pricing actuaries be consulted more in the valuation process or strategy under the building blocks approach? Um, I think even before you get to a measurement of, of your contract, probably even deciding the portfolios and groups that you go into, you're going to have to consult um, to understand at what level of granularity you perform the calculation and that that level of granularity meets the principles set out in the standard. So in fact that, that will be a key area of judgment and I can't see how whatever the decision is you would be able to justify that without demonstrating that there's been that consultation. So that, that would be my view. Okay, um, yeah I guess this conversation can go on for quite a bit of time still but uh, we need to wrap up. Um, so uh, I just actually would like to just thank our panelists for coming out and uh, giving their views on what we are or should be anticipating. And uh, hopefully this discussion has also addressed some of the questions you might have had and also given you an idea of where you are relative to the industry. So uh, thank you very much.